0: Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at City Church. And we are in week two of a sermon series called Sent. And what we're doing in this series is we are thinking about what it means to be the Spirit-empowered, the Spirit-filled people of God who are sent into the world to live on behalf of Jesus. Last week, uh, we looked at The end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, and there's this powerful, beautiful scene where Jesus breathes His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into His followers and says that in the same way that He was sent by the Father in heaven, He is now sending them into the world. This morning, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are Bibles in the Pures in front of you that you are welcome to use. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it follows the Gospels. So there are four Gospels that, um, from different vantage points, perspectives of um, disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of Jesus. And then the book of Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off. And so it's the continuation of the Jesus story told through the birth and life of the early church. And the scene that we're going to be looking at together this morning in Acts 1 verses 1 through 11 is a scene in which the disciples are waiting. They're waiting something that Jesus had promised them. So let me go ahead and read this passage for us. And before I uh, start reading this first line, for more context, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is also the author of this book of Acts. So when you hear me read the first phrase in the first book, Luke is referring to his gospel, which we refer to as Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the active personal presence of Jesus in our lives. We pray now that you would point us to Jesus, that you would reveal Jesus to us, that we might know him more, and that you might draw us into more deeply, with greater engagement, with greater fervency, your mission in this world. We pray that you would do your work in our midst. We recognize that some of us in this moment believe your word and in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Others of us don't, and maybe there's some of us who are confused. We're not sure what to believe. We pray that you would reveal the truth of your word, of Jesus, to us in the way that we need to have it revealed to us this morning. You are both our creator and our redeemer. You are the faithful steward of our story, so you know what to do in us during this time. So we look to you with expectancy. In the name of Jesus, amen. There was an article uh, several years ago in the New York Times, 2012 to be exact, called The Busy Trap. The Busy Trap, that was the title of the article. And at one point in the article, the author says this, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. I can't help but wonder if whether all this dramatic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. Let me read that last line again. I can't help but wonder if whether all this dramatic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. Now, let me make a distinction here. Um, As followers of Jesus who embrace the fullness of God's story, we believe that every aspect of life matters and that everything that we do matters in God's story. But this author, who I actually have no idea whether they are a follower of Jesus or not, um, I I think they're getting at something different. Do you know what the author is talking about? Can you resonate with it all, with it at all? That your life sometimes seems so busy, you're exhausted, exhausted and you feel like the more busy you are, it's actually a better indicator of the fact that you must be really important and that everything that you are doing must be really meaningful. But what if that's actually not true? What if our commitment to do all kinds of stuff, our commitment to overextend ourselves, what if actually what is so often going on is that we are attempting to fill a void in our lives? We're trying to construct an identity. We're trying to construct our well-being, our security. We're trying to uh, construct a way for ourselves to be validated by others. What if actually sometimes much of what we're doing doesn't really Matter. So let me ask you this question at the beginning of this sermon, our reflection on this passage. What matters to you most? What matters to you most? What is most important to you in your life? Like, how would you answer that question? And, and let me say this. I, Don't think of how you would answer it to another person in this room. Don't think about how you might answer the question audibly to me right now, because if you did that right away, it might not be the most honest answer. If you really began to search your inner self and you answered that question, what matters most? What is most important to you? How would you answer that? Well, each of us, we talk about this all the time at City Church. Deep down inside, we really do want our lives to count. We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. But what ends up happening, in an attempt to make this happen, we end up fixating on ourselves, don't we? And this is the tension. We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to live adventurously, risky, for something more, But the reality is is that we also prefer predictability, don't we? We prefer comfort and security. And so there's this tension in our lives. And ultimately, what we need is a story that is big enough, grand enough, meaningful enough to captivate us and transform us from being self-centered to other-centered. Leslie Newbegin was a theologian. I quoted him last week. He wrote this, The way we understand life depends on the question what is the real story of which my story is a part? What is the real story of which my life is par- a part? So I want to look at this passage from Acts 21, Acts chapter 1 and ask two questions. What is the story that matters most and how do we lean into it as our own? So what is the story that matters most? Let's come back to the question that I asked just a few moments ago. What matters most? What is most important? Now let me add something to the end of that question. What is most important or what should be most important according to Jesus? Well, one way of trying to figure out the answer to that question is to ask another question. What was it that Jesus talked about the most during his ministry? What did Jesus talk about the most during his earthly Ministry? Like, was there one particular theme, one topic that seemed to be central? The answer to that is yes, and it might surprise you. The answer to that question is this the kingdom of God. So, in other words, for Jesus, according to Jesus, there's something called the kingdom of God that apparently is what matters most. It's the most important thing. And we actually get a little bit of insight into this in our passage, in two different verses. First, look at verse 3. Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive to them, that is those disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, this is a, a big deal. This is important to make note of because what Luke is saying that is After the resurrection of Jesus, up until this point in the narrative, this time span of 40 days, what was it that Jesus saw fit to instruct his disciples in, to teach them about, to emphasize, to highlight? Now, keep in mind that what Jesus was about to do was what happens in this text. He was going to ascend into heaven. So in other words, he has these 40 days to um, additionally invest into his disciples, to communicate to them what he believes they need to know most, And what is it that he chose to focus on? Well, according to Luke, it was the kingdom of God. He spoke about the kingdom of God to them. And if you look down at verse 6, this scene of the ascension, we're told that when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you see what's happening here? This topic, this theme of the kingdom of God was so important, it was so ingrained into the disciples and we would, could make the case that it wasn't just simply from Jesus, it's actually because the story of the Bible as a whole is actually in reality about the kingdom of God. So it should be of no surprise that Jesus focused on this topic, this theme with his disciples. But it was so ingrained into them That when after the resurrection, this moment before the ascension, what do they ask Jesus? Basically, Jesus, Jesus, is this the time? Is this finally the time when your kingdom that you've been talking about, not only for these 40 days, but these last three years that we've been with you, is this finally the time when you are going to bring it? To bring it in all of its fullness, to set right all that is wrong in the world. And you can imagine that they're kind of on edge. Like, he might say, yes, this might be it. And in paraphrase, his answer is, not yet, not yet. It's not for you to know those times, but you actually have a part to play in the story of this kingdom coming in its fullness, and we'll we'll get to that. But the kingdom of God was a central topic and theme. And as I said, it wasn't just in that 40-day time span after the resurrection. When Jesus first came onto the scene, and I'm thinking of Mark in Mark's gospel, his telling of this. It says that Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming what? That the gospel, Mark says that he began to proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel according to that? That the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. So actually from the very start of Jesus' ministry to his finish, he focused on one particular topic and theme and made it central, the kingdom of God. And so we need to ask this question now, right? What is the kingdom of God? How would we define, how should we define the kingdom of God? One author defines it this way. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Does that resolve it for you? You're good with that? We're going to have to unpack that a little bit. But this author says the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. So, God's reign, this is the important, I think, most important aspect of this definition. You can almost think of the kingdom of God as God's presidency. You know, when we talk about. A president, we might refer to their campaign or um, what their administration is like. Well, when we're talking about the reign of God, the kingdom of God, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the administration of Jesus, Jesus' campaign. What is he all about? And what are the values of um, this kingdom that he is seeking to establish in the world? So, the kingdom of God is God's reign or his presidency through his people. So he brings it to bear, brings it to reality through his followers over God's place, over people, places, and things, we could say. Now, if we think about this a little more, how does the kingdom of God come into existence? Well, let's go back to the beginning of Mark's gospel. Remember, it says that Jesus began to go about proclaiming the gospel, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And believe the good news. So, the proclamation of good news, the proclamation of the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is King, that through Him we have the forgiveness of sins, through Him we can have new life through faith in Him. That proclamation is part of how the kingdom uh, and of how the kingdom of God comes into the world. But from there, what do we see Jesus do? Jesus begins to heal. Jesus begins to tangibly meet the needs of people. And so what we see at the heart of Jesus' ministry is both a word and a deed, a word and action ministry. And that's why I think Luke says what he does here um, in the first verse of Acts when he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, word and action. These things are meant to be connected. They should not be Separate. The kingdom of God comes through the witness of God's people as they proclaim the gospel and live, live it out and live in light of it. Jesus said in another place in the gospel, seek first the kingdom of God. And so now we're back to that original question. What matters most? What is most important? Well, we can Um, draw the inference from the fact that Jesus focused on the kingdom of God as his central topic and theme as the answer to that question. It must be the kingdom of God. But Jesus in Matthew 6 said, seek first the kingdom of God. So he's giving us the answer. He's articulating it explicitly. What matters most? What is most important in life? Jesus' response to that question is, seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is number one. The kingdom of God should be our overriding priority in life life. As I referred to, Luke and Acts exist as a companion volume. It's actually part of a single work. And this was common in the ancient world for a single work to consist of several parts or books, and we're familiar with this some in our own day, for the author, and for the author to include a brief intro into each. And so Luke summarizes the gospel you know, he points back to, I already began to talk about what Jesus um, taught and did. So he summarizes that, but then he moves forward from there and he's creating an intersection point. And what is the intersection point? It's Jesus and his followers. Jesus and his followers. His followers now are meant to continue the ministry that Jesus launched, this word and deed ministry. So there's unity in the story, particularly between. Uh, Luke and Acts. There's unity here. We could say it like this. What is the purpose of Luke? To give an account of what Jesus began to do and teach. What is the purpose of Acts? To give an account of what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Now notice that I put the emphasis and the activity, the action on Jesus. Yes, it is we as his followers who continue the mission, but it is ultimately Jesus' working out the mission. It's Jesus accomplishing the mission through us. So Acts is a to-be-continued. Now, interestingly, it ends as a to-be-continued as well. I'm just thinking about that in the moment, that um, Acts begins from Luke as a to-be-continued, and then it ends at the end of the book of Acts as a to-be-continued, because there are a lot of questions remaining at the book of Acts. What is going to happen from here? And that sort of thing. But let me real quick point out, before we move into the second question of how we lean into this story, did you catch that name, Theophilus? I know you called it. You had to have. Um, seems to come out of nowhere. Who is Theophilus? Well, we don't know exactly. We don't know all the information, the detail. But Luke, apparently, one of the reasons, one of the purposes of writing is to Communicate to this particular individual, Theophilus, and to either convince him or to increase his confidence in the story of Jesus and that 's why he begins where he does by talking about how the evidence how Jesus appeared to the disciples over the span of forty days and what he taught them, giving, them, giving the specifics to, to Theophilus. Luke wrote to testify to the reliability of the story, and so As we think about the story that matters most, and we've said, according to Jesus, it's the kingdom of God, it has to begin with us learning this story more deeply, engaging with this story, growing in confidence of the story. This was critical for the first disciples. They would not have gone out into the world as the witnesses of Jesus in the way that they did had it not been for their confidence in the story. They believed that it actually really was true. And how did that come about? Well, it came about through the personal presence of Jesus, but it also came about, as we learn, through Jesus' instruction to them, his teaching of them, particularly that those 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. In other words, he's increasing their confidence in the story. They're growing in their ability to have faith in Jesus and the story, to see it as reliable and to move out into the world from there. Now let's start to make this transition of um, the story that matters most and learning it and going deeper into it and how we lean into it. Um, Jeremy Treat is an author um, who wrote a book called Seek First, and Uh, In the book, he tells this story. He says that I love stories, and I love going to the place where there are more stories per square inch than anywhere, the bookstore. I will never forget one trip in particular. I was doing my usual thing, perusing the books, aimlessly looking for something that might catch my eye, when I randomly pulled out a title, The Artist of the Beautiful by J.D. Landis. I had never heard of the author, nor of this book, but the title intrigued me. So I pulled it off the shelf and read the description on the back cover. The fate of Swift River Valley holds a strange fascination for 17-year-old Sariana Renway, a wayward student obsessed with the life and work of poet Emily Dickinson. In the small hamlet of Greenwich Village, Greenwich Village, abandoned beautiful doom, Seriana takes a job tutoring a minister's son. Makes sense why he was so intrigued and fascinated by that, doesn't it? I I had the same blank look when I got to that point of reading. I was like, I am. I actually, before I went on, I went back and reread it thinking, what am I missing here? Well, that is not what ultimately fascinated him. He goes on to say, honestly, I wasn't interested, it was disappointing. But as I leaned in to set the book back on the shelf, I happened to read the next sentence in the description. Now, remember, the author of this book telling this story is Jeremy Treat. A man of deep faith, Jeremy Treat strives to instill hope into a town destined to be taken and lost forever. And he says, wait, Jeremy Treat, that's me. I'm Jeremy Treat. I looked around in shock wondering if someone was playing a joke on me. And just like that, I was hooked. What had looked boring for a moment before now had entranced me. Why? Now it was personal. A story comes alive when you find your place within it. A story comes alive when you find your place within it. This is really the point. Remember John chapter 20, the passage that we looked at last week. What does Jesus say to his disciples? as the Father sent me into the world. So that's that story that we want to learn. We want to know it more, uh, better. We want to know it more deeply. But then he says, as the Father has sent me into the world, now I am sending you. Ooh, you catch that? It just got personal. We were just made to be participants in the story. We have a role to play. It's almost like possibly... And this is what happens. Um, it's not possibly. This is what happens, I think, so much with us in our faith. We look at the objective story of Jesus, and as his followers, as Christians, we may agree with it, believe it's true, but we leave it there to some extent. We don't engage with it more deeply. We don't, our, our lives aren't always radically shaped by it. Because why? We think that, well, I mean, there are lots of things going on. One could be that Well, now it's just a matter of waiting for the kingdom to come in its fullness, as Jesus said. And so I have faith, I believe, and now I just wait for the day in which Jesus comes to establish his kingdom more fully. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus invites us as participants. He says, you actually are going to now be my witnesses to the reality of the kingdom. And so this gets at our identity and our purpose in life. When Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I am now sending you, that's actually an identity statement. What is our identity? Well, as those who are identified with Jesus through his life, his death, his resurrection, our identity is that of missionary. So it's not a matter of, in the life of the church, like we have some people that we support and designate as missionaries, and then there are us regular lay people, Um, that's not how it works. Yes, there are people called to specific vocational mission, but the reality is, is that it is actually our identity that we are missionaries. It's who we are. Does that make sense? So it's not just a matter of figuring out what we're supposed to do, and that's what we... Um, too often do in the church as well. We, we make it task-oriented, but, but it comes back to who we actually are. What we do as the followers of Jesus flows from who he has made us to be, who we are in him. We are a sent people. This is an identity thing. So how do we lean into this as our own? How do we actually lean into it? Well, at the end of the 40 days, as we see here, It was time to really, for Jesus, witness to the reality of the kingdom. Look at verse 8. This is such a thematic um, statement in the text. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what's cool is that the book of Acts actually, what has just happened there is that the outline of the book of Acts has just been provided for us. Because in chapters 1 through 7 of Acts, it's really about the gospel going forth in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, it's Judea and Samaria. And 13 through 28, it's the ends of the earth. And so Jesus has just provided an outline for us of the book of Acts. But Jesus promised in verse 5, remember that, that he would baptize his followers in the Holy Spirit. And now they are awaiting for that. And he says, you will receive power. You will receive power. And here's the connection I want you to make. We could ask it in the form of a question. Why does Jesus give his followers the Holy Spirit? Now, honestly, there are several right answers that you could give. But what I'm looking for is the most right answer, the fundamental answer, the answer that actually brings together all the other answers. And it's provided for us in the statement of Jesus. But you will receive, again, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then what does he say? And you will be my witnesses. Why does Jesus give his followers the Holy Spirit? So that we might be his witnesses so that we might be missionaries, so that we might live on mission. And and to put it in the context of the sermon and the theme, so that we might be people who, with the fullness of our lives, bear witness to the reality of God's kingdom. Now, if you are sensing and feeling a little bit like this seems like a bit much, this seems like a lot is expected of me, on the one hand, that's true. It is true. Um, for those who are given much, much is expected, right? And so as those who, through the, um, as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth and reliability of the story of Jesus, and we come to embrace Jesus as the Lord and the King, and He has this kingdom, yes, we are expected to give our lives to it because we believe it's what matters most. It's what's most important. But we're not left to our own devices, Right? Jesus equips us. This is the whole point. This is why it's such a big deal in this story of the early church for Jesus to give the Holy Spirit because he recognizes your question. This seems like a bit much. Jesus' response would be, I know. (laughs) It does. You can't do it on your own. So I'm going to give you my personal presence in the form of the Holy Spirit. And this is why the disciples are waiting it's why Jesus told them to wait. If you go out and try to bear witness to my kingdom, if you try to testify to the fact that shalom is flooding into this world, breaking into this world through my work and my active presence in the world, if you try to do this in your own power and strength, you will miserably fail. And what might also happen is that you actually, over time, might lose confidence in the story. Why? Because we might actually start to begin to doubt whether Jesus is present with us. You see how this is coming full circle? I I, I do this all the time. I get into these seasons of life where I'm really attempting to do mission, bear witness to the reality of Jesus' kingdom in my own power and strength. And I'm getting exhausted, right? Right? It's it's tiring me out. And then what happens is I begin to, these doubts creep in. Well, is Jesus really Lord and King? Because I feel like he'd be showing up in greater power in, in my life. Is the story really credible? Is it really reliable? Is it really true? When Jesus gave the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, he said, I am with you always. This is the point. And this is why. Knowledge and awareness and living in the personal presence of Jesus is connected to mission. Another way of saying this is that spiritual formation and mission belong together. And as we look to the future as a church, this is going to be something that becomes increasingly important for us. I think in our um, first, I don't know how many years as, as a church family, we rightly emphasized mission living on mission. Um, We must be on mission. And I think we saw a lot of fruit from that. But then I think what began to happen, and I saw this in my own individual personal life and ministry, and then in the church as a whole, is that we stopped seeing some of that same fruit. Why is that? Because I think that, I'll just speak for myself, I started to become exhausted, exhausted by the mission. And as I've done soul searching, I've realized wow, like I've done a lot of trusting in my own abilities, in my own power, in my own strength. And I've really um, not done as much being with Jesus as I should be. Now, this is the interesting thing. I think in order to recover the mission, because that's, I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we overemphasize mission. I just think that we failed to equip uh, you with the resources to do the, mini- to, do, to do the mission. And the resources primarily being the Holy Spirit and the personal, in the form of the personal presence of Jesus. And so as we move forward and look to the future as a church, this is going to be our focus. We're going to seek to recover mission, but not simply by just standing up here like this and saying, mission, 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 go do mission, but by being with Jesus together by loving the presence of Jesus, by loving Jesus, by experiencing the love of Jesus for us. Because that's what compels us then to go out into the world to bear witness to the reality of this good and amazing kingdom, right? This kingdom that is what actually matters most and what is most important. And so a couple more points of application. I think that we need to kind of resolve this dilemma that all churches face between maintenance and mission. And what I mean is that um, we have to invest resources and time and energy into, for lack of a better word right now, it's Just they both start with M, so it works well. I'm a preacher, and so I look for that kind of thing. But by maintenance, I mean focusing internally on our church life together and what we have to do to... Um, allow ourselves to be open to the work of Jesus and to meet the needs of people who come into our church family. But we can't do that at the expense of mission. We, we can't become consumers. And, and, that, and it's so the line is so blurred. It's so hard for me as a pastor as I think about these kinds of things. The line can be so blurred. You know, when, when are we focusing too much on mission at the expense of our own internal growth, but when are we focusing too much on our internally that we are overlooking mission? It's, it's tough. We need the leading of the Holy Spirit for this. Um, another uh, aspect that is going to be a theme for us moving forward is reengaging in cross-cultural ministry. Um, if you look at the proposal, original proposal that I wrote for City Church, uh, the vision was for us to be a church that was engaged deeply in cross-cultural ministry, that our church family would be a colorful family that reflects uh, God's kingdom in increasing measure. And for a variety of reasons that I won't get into in this sermon, um, we'll save that for an- another time, um, we have lost a lot of that. And we've lost um, a focus on that. And so that, as we um, begin with our new full elder team, is going to be um, a major uh, topic of consideration for us. How might the Holy Spirit lead us and use us um, to become a church that is more uh, committed to cross-cultural ministry and growing in the beautiful diversity of our city? And then one last thing, I'll say it, I'll use... This language to get at it, spirit-filled and prayerful lives. It connects back to the spiritual formation aspect. It's such a shame, uh, particularly in American church, where we have all these false dichotomies where we have to pick and choose. Either you're a church committed to discipleship or you're a church committed to evangelism. That is contrary to our philosophy of ministry here at City Church. We believe that we're called to both. They both go together. They belong together. And so we want to be a church that is characterized by spirit-filled, prayerful people, beginning with our elders and our leadership. We want to be known as people who walk in step with the Spirit. Because how is the world going to look in at our community life, our family life as a church, and say, there's something beautiful here. There's something powerful here. There's a greater story here. How are we going to bear witness to the reality of God's kingdom in the world? It's going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit, through crying out to Jesus, through being with Jesus. Doing for Jesus proceeds from being with Jesus. And that's what we want to give focus to. And so as we close I want you to consider your role, your part in this. Remember the, the Jeremy Treat story? I have no idea if I'm... I assume that's how you say his last name. It could be Trot, T-R-E-A-T, probably Treat. Remember his story where he's about to put the book down and then realizes, oh, wait, is this story about me? And that's the moment that I want us each to have. Oh, wait. The kingdom of God story, the Jesus story, that's about me. Through what Jesus has done for me, through my faith in him and being identified with him, I actually really am a participant in the story. It's not just the church leaders. It's not just the people that we designate as missionaries. I actually have a vital role to play in the kingdom of God coming in this city and in our region. And I pray that we would wait for the Spirit, so to speak. I pray that we would be a people who carve out time in our lives to be with Jesus so that we might actually do for Jesus in a way that really does reflect the beauty of his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, you have gifted us, your people, with your very personal presence through the Holy Spirit. We repent of how we have turned away. We repent of how we have trusted ourselves. We pray that you would heal our disordered hearts. We pray that you would heal our disordered lives. We pray that you would heal our disordered city. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, genuinely, really, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might have power. You promised us power. I pray that we would access this power that you have given us, that we might faithfully participate in the story of the kingdom. Give us a vision for this. I pray for those who are in our midst this morning that um, maybe don't even know you. They have not proclaimed you as king. I pray that in this moment, you would reveal yourself as the true king and that you would show them that they have The role to play in a story bigger than themselves. And I pray for others of us who are weak in our faith currently, who are doubting whether you, Jesus, could use somebody like us. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. I pray that you would help us to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might be reminded of the fact that we are yours, and that because we are yours, and because your personal presence is with us, we can step out in faith and participate in your mission. We pray that you would do these things not because we deserve them, but because you are good and glorious and gracious and merciful and kind, and you are committed to loving your people. Love us in this way that we might actually sense that we are living as your disciples. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.